0: Greetings, dear listeners. The world is in upheaval, with Russia escalating, Iran up in arms, and populist skinning ground across the European continent. Shadi and I sat down this week to take it all in and to throw in our pennies into events that quite frankly feel like they're outrunning commentary. There's lots to get to, so on to the show. (music)
1: Demir, maybe just tell us where you are. Like, is anything interesting happening in Croatia right now that you can give us insight into?
0: Um, in Croatia, not so much. I mean, there's Bosnian elections, and in, uh, and
1: no, we don't. Never mind. But you don't want <laughs> okay. that.
0: And you get into, yeah, exactly. I was in Kosovo. That was interesting. But again, probably bigger things going on in the world right now than than what's going on there. I mean, there's plenty to talk about that if uh, people are interested. But I think. Uh, it's funny It's funny being in these sorts of places where the stakes are locally high and then you sort of zoom out and look at the papers and Putin's declaring nuclear war and <laughs> mass mobilizing for war in Ukraine and, uh, you know. Well, how about we run- start
1: with that? Because I haven't been following it very closely. You probably are at least keeping track of some of those developments. Mm-hmm. I mean how bad is it? How frightening is it? I, I didn't see the exact like, what was the exact quote on nuclear war? Like how serious I mean, was he about that?
0: Look, I, I'll put it like this. It's one of these things that I've never I've not really understood why uh, he hadn't done this sooner. It, it was pretty clear <laughs> that that like, you know, his his war effort wasn't going that well. Uh, you know, that he had some success sort of grinding it out, just basically throwing meat at the problem. With like artillery barrages, and he took a good chunk of land, and I don't know what was that, April, uh, yeah. March, April, and then by May, it's it just sort of ended, and it's like, okay, all right, dude, it's something something's not right. Surely, even if you if your military generals are telling you things are going perfectly, something's not 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 working well, um, and uh, he did nothing. There's just like you know there was. They just sort of dug in and, and waited. And obviously then the Ukrainians turned around and, and started shellacking them uh, because they've been getting good, uh, you know, American support, Western support, arms deliveries, and uh, they've been training. Um, so I, I guess what I'm getting at is that what he announced this time is something I was kind of expecting him to do in May, which is to say, okay, we've taken all this territory. We're going to run a bullshit referendum. Uh Make it a part of Russia, and then what he said is is uh, is again stance to reason. You know, this is a part of Russia. If you attack Russia, we we will, you know, uh, we won't hesitate to use nuclear weapons because that's part of generally uh, nuclear deterrence doctrine. Is like you know, an attack on on sovereign territory is uh, gets that kind of response. So I don't know. But then the question is of credibility. I don't know. I've seen a lot of people writing being like, oh, it's a bluff. It's a bluff. I don't know if it's a bluff. <laughs> it's the well, there's the only bluff, one I way guess. to find
1: out, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's a
1: good. Gr- that's a good thing about nuclear warfare. Yeah, you can I mean, test it out and see what happens.
0: Right. Or you or not, and then deterrence is upheld, right? <laughs> but but you know, it's interesting. It is a. It's a. Uh, who was I talking to about this? Um, oh, I forget. But I was in a discussion. I mean, it is unprecedented when you think about it. it what hasn't been ever tried before? right? Is you annex territory and you say, um, this is mine. And then you say, if you try and roll back my aggressive annexation, I will nuke you. That's mm. genuinely innovative. Wow. And it pre- I hadn't and thought it present- about it that way. It presents a precedent of sorts, right?
1: Hmm. Yeah.
0: So it's, it's bad. It's bad that, that, that this is now in danger of becoming a precedent, I guess. I don't know who else would avail themselves of it but it never really has happened before
1: well there's only so many nuclear powers and only a couple of them are legitimately crazy or not crazy but um quote unquote irrational or irrational from a western perspective of rationality we mostly just have russia and china and i suppose iran some at some point in the future um who else do we have it could be oh yeah um is there another bad country?
0: Bad country with nukes? I don't know. <laughs> Pakistan.
1: Yeah. India. Yeah. <laughs> France. The list. The list grows. Britain.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> America.
0: America. No, look. I mean, uh, it's just it's it's interesting. It's 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 a, a genuine innovation. I guess we're 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 going to see a lot of theories tested. Um, I'm not going to say it's not. Oh, I forgot not-
1: Israel. We forgot Israel.
0: Oh yeah. Wait. No, they don't have it. What are you talking about? Oh, <laughs> you let the cat out of the bag. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. I mean, I don't know. It's 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 a it's a genuinely interesting moment. I guess I've just been so busy that I'm not. I I haven't been quite as rattled by it as I might be if I was sitting in D.C. and thinking more about it. Um, and yeah. also, what about the mass- because, mm. Yeah. The mass well, mobilization I, part of it. I, I mean, I'll just say on the nuclear thing before on the mass mobilization, largely because I've been sort of expecting this, I guess, at some point, and so I, I don't, I haven't gamed it out, but it's, I'm, I'm just not as rattled by it as perhaps I should be. Uh, on mass mobilization, I mean, that's the other big question, um, and I mean, you're you're more expert on sort of you know regime stability and things like that, and 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 how these sorts of things work, how maybe authoritarian regimes end up crumbling, but that's another one that i've been surprised about right that that he hasn't done this sooner because again it looks like this wasn't going anywhere as of may so what you've been waiting for bro does you can't like flip a switch and and just mobilize overnight so you know on the one hand the, my thinking was um either he's misinformed or or something but on the other hand is right like he's uh he knows his country better than certainly any of us do uh like authoritarians are if they're good and, and have lasted for a long time, they they know their weaknesses pretty well, I assume. So maybe uh, he's been worried about doing mobilization because it undermines the regime. I don't know.
1: And he would have a good point there. But then the question is, why would he have shifted just in the past couple of weeks if he had already, if he had been waiting all this time because he didn't want to take the risk it might undermine regime stability? I mean, maybe he just decided, look, it's risky, but... The war is going terribly, so this is something I have to seriously consider now.
0: And that's the thing, right? Like at some point, uh, losing the war outright becomes a risk to regime stability, and you, you balance that against you know how well you can repress something at home, right? Um, and that has to be the calculus at this point. Is we risk this? Doesn't seem like he's prepared the populace for some sort of mass sacrifice war. You know, he talks about it, but the stories. Um, you know, my my friend Valerie Hopkins, who's now back in Moscow reporting for the New York Times, had an article a couple of weeks ago uh, saying that that life in Moscow is completely normal. You know, before mm. the mobilization, like he had managed to completely not um, make it feel like it's wartime in Moscow, basically by recruiting uh, <laughs> Muslims for the provinces to. To go fight as cannon fodder in the Ukraine war, you know. I mean, it's 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 ethnic minorities. It's not core Russians from Moscow and Saint Petersburg that are fighting and dying in this war. It's um, it's colonial uh, subject peoples of the old Russian Empire that are still part of you know the Russian Federation. Uh, they've been thrown into the meat grinder. So now that might be changing, and and that's a that's a, a dangerous thing. A, a friend of mine in Kosovo actually yesterday, two days ago, mentioned this to me. It's like. It was very similar to the wars in, in Yugoslavia in the sense that in Belgrade um, you know until until the NATO bombing started happening there, uh, Milosevic was very careful to not basically go for a mass mobilization that would then actually upset the, the core parts of the of uh, you know Yugoslav at the time Serbian society uh, that were you know if not supporting him necessarily fully were quiescent about it. They were like, yeah, you know Stuff's happening yeah. the the leaders doing it. so maybe maybe that changes now. Um, I don't know i'm I'm far from sanguine about any of it that I'm predicting that like bad things are you know that good things are going to happen or that like the regime's going to to cave. I don't know how you how you know these things, but the ingredients are certainly there for something bad to happen to Putin. Um, I did we'll see. see
1: the pictures of this mass I don't know if it was a mass exodus, but certainly thousands of people, thousands of Russian men are fleeing because they wanna avoid uh, conscription, including into Georgia. I don't know if you have a sense of how widespread that is. There does seem to be some lack of enthusiasm at the very least. And I just saw that they qualified the conscription call by saying that those in certain white collar jobs would be exempt, the white collar exception apparently um yeah. which is also a risky thing if if you're sort of if you're sending the poor and the working class to fight and die and then it becomes known that others are getting exemptions because they're in certain kinds of jobs i mean that that's probably not ideal from a regime perspective either
0: honestly from what i'm seeing and you know it's it's all very partial and i have no idea but it seems like it's it's pretty random um, you know, even the whole concept of a partial mobilization—I uh, think most people don't know what's happening. I don't think there's been any properly strict sense of what qualifies for what exemption or, or what. You know, so I think there's generally, you know, anything between—I uh, think terror among those that have been able to and have been following and are trying to see what's happening in Ukraine and don't want to go there. And those are the ones fleeing. There have been, you know, huge lines. People heading for the border. Like uh, tickets for flights out of Russia sold out. And you know, and obviously they have limited options at this point because a lot of the airlines have been have been already cut. Um, but uh, also, you know, just just kind of that 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 classic Russian resignation. There have been a couple of clips out there of, you know, just completely drunk Russians showing up for. Military service and these like barracks and you know staggering around and uh, who knows who knows um, I mean people always sort of point out that that you know Russia has never been a particularly orderly place and the way it does war has never been particularly orderly so I'm not going to look at these sort of scenes of chaotic conscription and conclude that uh, nothing's going to come of it that it's just shambolic but. Uh, you know, at the same time, this is not a war of, you know, uh, of cavalry and and, uh, horse-drawn artillery where you can just like throw people at the problem. You need some training in in modern warfare. And maybe they really will be coming up woefully short on that. I really don't know. I'm not a military expert or analyst, but yeah, worth watching. But it's
1: also like, what are they dying for? I think there's also a major enthusiasm gap between the two sides. I mean, the Ukrainians are fighting... For their very survival for the existence of their nation as they know it it's just hard for me to understand how motivated ordinary russian conscripts would be on the front lines like what how would they even conceptualize what they're fighting for
0: i you know i i uh the only the only sort of note of caution is that um it's not like the Red Army was fighting, you know, out of ideological zeal and fervor uh, in World War II. You know, I, Stalin had people in the back just shooting people who were deserting. It was just basically that classic throwing meat at the problem thing. And um, I mean, arguably, they were defending their homeland, so that they did have that. So I guess that was a story that was told them, but it wasn't sort of a... A terribly popular war, I think at the time uh, there was more ideology behind it than what what Putin seems to be able to gin up, but then again, you know he's trying to say that this is the world attacking Russia and stuff like that i i I can't imagine that it's properly resonating um, but maybe it is I don't know, I really don't know um, hmm. but you know we'll see we'll see i guess the the question is also is is whether this is also cover for him trimming his ambition some more. Maybe what we're looking at here is uh, him trying to surge troops in to hold what he's got so far in hopes that the Ukrainians won't be able to take any more, declare that this is now Russian territory, deter by nukes, and then maybe maybe there's some kind of you know push for negotiations after that. The main problem is I don't see the Ukrainians negotiating at this point. They've lost so much, plus they've tasted a sense of being able to roll it back at this point. So I don't know, um, and then it becomes a question about like Western resolve about how how much will they be supporting the Ukrainians if the Russians sue for peace, holding all of this territory, and this gets back to the nastiness of this this idea of annexing territory and then defending the annexation with nuclear weapons. That's a nasty precedent to just sort of accede to. Um, so yeah. we'll see. Yeah,
1: and are the Ukraine Ukrainian goals? um, rolling back uh, Russian forces from all captured territory or only a certain, I mean, what, what to them, like, do you have a sense of what their, their, um, military end goal is that's also plausible?
0: Look, I mean, now, especially now at their, their moment of, um, with momentum shifting their ways, they're certainly not going to be talking about, uh, limited gains. Um, you know i i think zelensky has been has sort of changed as as um as fortunes have shifted it's certainly now at this moment it would it would not behoove him to start lowering his gains i haven't heard anything of what they're saying in private and what what is realistic on this uh, certainly in public they're saying we, we're taking it all back we're expelling the the invader that includes yeah. crimea which has already been annexed. so um you know we'll see okay but you know, so I don't know. Let's 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 talk a bit about Iran, Shadi, because you know it's it's since we're talking about Russia and sort of regime stability, I've been struck by, you know, yet another round of of um, uprising in Iran. What why why is it that 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 it never seems to succeed there? You know, like and again, this feels. Again, I, I'm, I'm really looking at this from afar, so I can't say that to what extent it feels exactly like the Green Revolution, but we had a martyred woman, you know, uh, as a symbol of revolt. You had an unhappy people uh, taking to the streets. Um, do you, what What is it about the Iranians that, that makes their repressive regime so resilient? Is there... Is there like studies of like successful regime resilience? Like, do do people study that? Like, people study democracy.
1: Yeah, yeah. There, there is a um, a sort of subfield on authoritarian durability. Is how it's often called. Mm. Um, so yeah, people study authoritarianism and and sources of regime re- resilience. I just I think the explanation is actually maybe a bit simpler than all that. It, it's just really hard to overthrow an authoritarian regime um it tends to like if you have repeated tries then you know the as time passes on maybe one protest movement or one or at one specific moment something will click and there will be a confluence of factors that lead to regime over overthrow but in any particular opposition mobilization it it is very hard to succeed And in some ways i think it's becoming even more difficult considering how regimes that are willing to use repression first of all they have um the sort of surveillance capacity that they wouldn't have had say 40 or 50 years ago um and the state is just more states are stronger and more dominant at least in this narrow sense um they're just more able to keep track of how where people are protesting, how many people are protesting. Um, they've been preparing for this moment for years. They've had a lot of experience pushing back protesters over the past you know, 20 years, but especially since the Green Movement in 2009, they've done this time and time again, and they've organized their security and intelligence services and, and the Revolutionary Guards to basically be very, to be pretty proficient at suppressing internal dissent, and all of these regimes are so obsessed with survival that they don't actually know how to fight. Well, to be fair, Iran actually does have, a, you know, a pretty good military compared to their Middle Eastern neighbors. But if you look at other countries in the region, like Egypt, is very good at policing its own people, but Egypt wouldn't know how to fight a war in real life. They don't, I mean, uh, <laughs> Arab armies are known to be terrible when they're actually fighting um, outside their own borders or defending their own borders. Uh, that's just not what they're designed for. Mm-hmm. So, um but yeah, it's just like, how do you actually overthrow a regime? So you have these protesters, um, the protests seem to be growing, but There isn't any clear leadership structure. There aren't any clear demands that are coming from the protesters beyond stop repressing us. Mm. But there isn't, they don't have a vision for what the alternative regime looks like or what they actually want to happen to the existing regime. I mean, how does that actually work? The regime presumably isn't just going to crumble. There would have to be some thinking as to like, what are the intermediary steps and what are gains that are short of a full revolution because you can have successful protest movements but then there's also successful revolutions outright those are very difficult like actual actual full blown revolutions that dismantle the existing regime structure to such a degree that the regime no longer exists in any form so I mean, all those are open questions. I I don't know in the case of Iran to what extent the thinking is advanced. Um, it says I don't follow this closely, but that those are to me the challenging questions. And if we're talking about sp- spontaneous protests that just started a few days ago, um, or six or seven days ago now, I think we're, we're at that stage. I mean... They were spontaneous. So how do you go from a spontaneous protest movement to something more organized? And if you recall, in the Arab Spring, it wasn't actually a revolution in Egypt. Um, the military basically co-opted the protest movement and forced Mubarak out. But the regime in some form survived. Right. So look, the equivalent of that in the Iranian case would be if the Iranian military somehow decided to stand with the people but that's very hard to envision um because the iranian yeah it's an interesting thought i just from what i understand about the iranian context there's just no conceivable way the iranian revolutionary because i mean there's also a kind of revolutionary ideology you have the Revolutionary Guard in particular, which is very committed to the survival of this revo- of this ongoing 30 year plus revolution. Um, wait, how many years has it been? Sorry, 40 years. Wait, mm. my edition, let's get okay. 1979 minus, that. minus 2022. 40
0: 43. <clears throat> yeah, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Okay, whatever
1: right. it is. Yeah, forty-three. But, you know, but you have a you have a military infrastructure that is very committed to continuing the revolutionary regime.
0: Yeah. Well, so look, um, so what happened um, exactly to juxtapose? How do you juxtapose uh, Tunisia and Egypt? Because. You know, at least the Egyptian case, you had the Muslim Brotherhood that were institutionalized. And so, you know, even though the military, you know, persisted and the regime persisted, though it was sort of like, a, you know, a deposition of, of one of its own. Um, how did it work in Tunisia and why was that successful? Because that too was, you know, at least on the surface, spontaneous because of, uh, you know, uh, that guy burning himself alive and, 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 and the protests yeah, so that sprung the Tunisian- up around that.
1: So the authoritarian regime in Tunisia um, had not actually successfully politicized the Tunisian military. The Tunisian military, somewhat unusually for the region, actually had some reputation of being professional, um, but also they just weren't as key to regime regime stability because actually Ben Ali, who was ousted in 2011, um, ex-president Ben Ali, was so focused on internal security that he focused on the police and the Ministry of Interior. And that was his real source of strength internally. He wasn't, he hadn't relied on the military as much for internal security. And there wasn't a tradition of military politicization the way we've seen in Egypt, Syria, number of other countries. So that was a key difference. So he couldn't necessarily go to the Tunisian military and say, "Well, can you guys mobilize and shoot into the crowds?" Mm. That wasn't really um, something that was obviously available to him. To be fair, the Egyptian regime didn't do that either. But that was also um, because the Egyptian regime knew that it that it had the, it had so much popular support because there was just a legacy of support for the military from independence. So they calculated correctly that they could say we're on the side of the people and we're just going to get rid of the troublesome character of Mubarak. And then we can still keep our share of the power during a so-called managed transition, if that makes sense. But yeah, Tunisia just was a very, like the military just did not play the same kind of role.
0: And the police were not sufficient to put it down. Like basically, whatever structures he had invested yeah. in were insufficient to to keep it all together. I mean, you know, it's 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 uh, it's sort of a, a you know inappropriately jokey question, but it, it's it's got a, a, a kernel of seriousness to it. You know, I mean, like in the West, in open societies, we invest a lot of time studying democracies. I, yeah, I guess it's a it's the nature of of uh, of autocracies that they're not going to be sharing these sorts of secrets, but. You know, you'd think that if there was like an autocratic international, that'd be like lessons learned and they'd be studying this shit pretty carefully. I oh, mean, well, maybe they, they do, do and
1: that- They do. And there are some major insights from the Arab Spring that have been adopted since then. So, for example, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, also to some extent Syria, although different context. But I think one of the major lessons from the early protests in 2011 is that you don't concede anything to the opposition you don't meet them halfway. Um, You just, you have a zero tolerance approach instead. So the idea is that Mubarak was actually too soft, that Ben Ali in Tunisia was actually too soft, (coughs) that if they had decided from day one to use brute force, to not waver and to not display any confusion, you go all in with repression because being half-hearted in your repression doesn't really work. And protesters see that weakness. They see that the regime is wavering. They see that the regime coalition is not united and they exploit that weakness.
0: Yeah.
1: And that's why I'm actually very, pes- I'm pretty pessimistic about the future of protest in the Arab world for precisely this reason, because I think most Arab autocrats and their intellectual supporters they've come to that conclusion. Hmm. You don't like this middle, like limited competition, you know, like bringing in some members of some opposition parties in or allowing the brotherhood to have 20% of parliament or letting people mobilize, but only to a certain degree. It's very hard to get this kind of like perfect calibration when it comes to how much mobilization you're willing to tolerate. The easier way is just to say no mobilization is permissible and any sign of mass protests will be dealt with without apology and with sheer brutality i mean that's that's the sisi approach in egypt
0: well so you know what's interesting about that it's you know you're saying it's sort of like a a new uh understanding but i mean it's that's a sort of tried and true no it's not it's not new i just think
1: it was reinforced in light of the experience of the arab spring
0: because because Assad's daddy was famous with that, right? Like, I mean, he he was just like massacre outright destroy. Yeah, uh, and, exactly. And, and again, like, yeah, going back, um, I'm even thinking, yeah, Yugoslavia was not that repressive, but it was this sort of idea is like first you smack it down, and then maybe you know, in once you've 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 uh, set up your, your your full authority on something, then you can maybe reconcile the reconcilables and co opt them or something like that. But yeah. it's always interesting, right? It's like authoritarian governance is really—I've been thinking about that a lot this week. It's—it's it's, you know, I think in the caricatured way of thinking about it is uh, you know some kind of monarch or king or you know, but but dictatorship is is a is a really unpleasant job, and I don't mean just unpleasant because you have to hurt and kill people, but just like unpleasant because you're never secure. You're always sort of looking out over your shoulder for something that's going to come up. And, you know, you're um, you have to be paranoid all the time, whether you're going to get screwed by an uprising, by economic shortages. And uh, so you have to be somehow like, you know, uh, what is it? Output legitimate uh, on on some level. You have to, on the other hand, watch your back for other people who are trying to come at you. Uh, your own security services have like concentric rows of, of, of security from your own security. I mean, I don't know if you saw. I think I sent you a a text uh, maybe thirty minutes before we started. But there's like rumors that they that something going on in China. Yeah, yeah. Um, So I searched
1: for that and I couldn't really, I couldn't find anything from legitimate sources. It just seems that people have been tweeting about it and it's very impressionistic. But I think that actually gets to your point that even even in a context like China, where the CCP, uh, Chinese Communist Party is seen to be, um, you know, fairly united, um, you know, behind uh, President Xi and, and so on, that even there, there is still going to be, Considerable paranoia and just the fact that coup rumors will come up is like, even if they're not real, the fact that you can have coup, coup rumors is probably of concern to, you know, whoever's in charge in China right now. So, uh, but I think that I've always wondered why do authority, being an authoritarian has never seemed particularly appealing to me when I think about, you know, different career trajectories that could have been available to me, like one of the least appealing is to be part of a dictatorial regime that uses force against its own people. The level of stress that would probably entail, I don't know, maybe just people love power. I've never really totally related to the idea of this very strong, innate desire for power, because I I would just much prefer to write and to not necessarily be in a position where I actually control the levers of the state. But maybe like once you start tasting that, that's like once maybe it's one of those things like escargot, Mm. where if you've never had escargot before,
0: Mm you are not
1: you don't feel like a strong you're not into it, because like, whatever, it's escargot, who cares? Why would I be into that? I can just have normal food. But the people who start having escargot, which for people who aren't aware, is a, a dish, snails, French snails. Well, I don't know if they're from any. No, they can be France. any snails,
0: <laughs> just prepared in a French style. Yeah, exactly. You can have American snails prepared.
1: Yeah, yeah. But once you have, once you have that first taste of the snail, then you're like, oh, sh- oh, this is what they've been talking about. So this is what it feels like to have a snail, and then you decide. The only, that the only you just thing, want to have that indefinitely. Let me just
0: correct your metaphor though it's not it's not snail it's human flesh right it's it's eating the long <laughs> pig it's like <laughs> no one knows what this is like and then you taste it and you're like, oh my goodness this is delicious and then well, that's what animal- happened I
1: think with Jeffrey Dahmer right I'm not watching this series uh, but <laughs> no but he was he he was a cannibal who developed a taste for human flesh
0: right. Right. So
1: apparently some people, and there have been cannibalistic tribes in yesteryear. I don't know how prevalent that ever became. Anyway, that's a little bit of a diversion from the main point, which is apparently people love holding power and concentrating it, even if it is stressful. Yeah. Um, I also don't find the idea of like killing and torturing your own citizens to be particularly appealing. Like. Okay. Like but that, you know, I
0: mean, like, I, I feel like I don't want to say that that's you know the limit case i think you probably get there necessarily as things go but i you know i'm i'm more struck by by sort of you know not not full totalitarian police state stuff but but on the road to it you know and i don't know if all roads lead to full totalitarian police state stuff but you know you and i have talked about this before it's 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 I think I think there's like a path dependency on this. You you sort of start uh, down this path, and then you create situations for yourself that require you to go further and further. I mean, I'm not sure it's like the like the sweet sweet taste of human flesh that is so you know appealing. It's just you sort of find yourself going in that direction. If you're someone like. Um, like Asa Jr., right? You're you're just born into it, and you know your 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 dad, who's sort of learned by doing, tries to impart lessons for you, and so you know it's sort of all you know. It's it's you're 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 thrown into it, and that's you're you're managing it, um, and your life kind of depends on it. I so I mean I, I I don't doubt that a lot of these guys are you know have some sort of sadistic tendencies, but you know the, what's striking to me is that you know we talk about uh, democratic politics, uh, and then, you know, we, we assume that authoritarianism somehow is, you know, doesn't involve politics. But when you think about it, all this like palace intrigue, you know, who knows, probably nothing's happened in China, but we'll see maybe by the time this is published, there'll be more news and and something will have happened. Regardless, there's always intrigue within the, you know, the, uh, the communist party, all sorts of backstabbing, uh, Rising princes, uh, you know purges that happen within the party politics is real it happens It's just it's not legitimated by the by the ballot uh, but you know You can't you can't repress the political and so yeah, I don't I I I I, I just sort of want to qualify this idea that that you know Authoritarianism is a life-calling as you seem to have it, you know, it's just like, oh, you know the <laughs> I Really like this. This is great. <laughs> I feel like I feel like it's it's probably never like that, you know, I mean, I think they probably some of them enjoy it by the time, like, you know, and as they get sort of degenerate over time, like Saddam Hussein and and and, uh, and Stalin and like, you know, these sorts of really, you know, terminal cases as they become or Putin, for that matter, you know, you just have this kind of um, as it gorges itself and, and becomes more uh, corrupt and decadent. Uh, sure. Yeah, it becomes hedonistic on some level, but I, I, I think the process of getting there is one of just sort of politics and power consolidation and lack of opposition, which feeds into you know all of a sudden you know you're 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 jailing a shit ton of people and and torturing dissidents. Well, there,
1: yeah, and I think there's a very practical reason why once you start repressing. It creates its own momentum, because if you've committed some atrocities, then if the opposition ever gains control, it's probably too late for you, that there's going to be some kind of accounting, um, that there's going to be trials. Like, Are these people given amnesty? So if you're a military leader, and let's say you weren't in support of full-on dictatorship, but- in the process of being a military leader, you did suppress some protests. Those protesters are probably, and you know, and their and their kin are not going to forget what happened. So there's always this risk that you will be called to account. This was always this was a challenge in the Latin American transitions. Is how do you have a pacted transition where, you know, in in many cases, uh, military leaders are given some kind of amnesty or there isn't a full-on truth and reconciliation. And that's the only way they were able to get um, members of the military in these countries to go along with transitions. So you have to make some kind, there has to be an off-ramp for the authoritarians, but there's no guarantee that they'll get that. And that's why they fight until the very end, because for them, like, will they be forced into exile? Will their assets be seized? Will their children be harassed or even arrested or detained? I mean, there's all these things that you have to think about once you've become even a middling authoritarian, even for a year or two. And maybe you're actually someone who feels somewhat conflicted intellectually and morally about what you're doing. But if it comes to your kids, if it comes to your family, if it comes to what country you'll be able to spend your dying days in. Those are, re- are things, I mean, what was asset going to do? Like for him, there was no off ramp. So he only had either he he and his family would potentially be killed or he fights until the very end. But what was the middle ground that asset could have accepted after he had killed tens of thousands of people, then it goes to 100,000, then, then it's too late for you because then there will never be an off ramp for you if you've if you committed those th- that much atrocities um but uh but on the desire to kill so that's a practical side i will say on the the taste for human flesh if you will the desire to kill that I think there is something innate in all humans, and I think luckily most of us who have grown up in democratic societies, like this part of us doesn't really come out all that much, thank God. But bloodlust is a universal thing. We see in particular circumstances how ordinary people across time and place start to develop a taste for blood. They enjoy seeing their fellow countrymen killed and humiliated and tortured and whatever else it might be. There is something about subjugating your adversaries or your political enemies at home that people do seem, some people seem to, I don't want to say enjoy it, because I don't think it's like, oh, I enjoy this. But, you know, I've talked about my relatives in Egypt who supported the coup and the massacre post uh July 2013. I mean that's an example of bloodlust. They wanted they wanted though they wanted their opponents in Egypt to be suppressed, even yep. killed. Yeah. So and you know you, we've seen it in in the Balkans time and time again. So it it happens it can happen anywhere, I guess. The question is, under what circumstances does that dark side of the human experience come out? Obviously, there has to be a confluence of factors.
0: You know, just when you were talking there about um, the even before we get into the the, the bloodlust element of it, it is striking. You know, when you talk about say Assad, you know, sort of finding himself in the situation where he has to uh, has to repress, and I, you know, I I, I suppose. There has been scholarship on this. You perhaps know better than me. I mean, on some level, I, I, I recoil from you know trying to armchair psychologize these people, apart from just pointing out that it's complicated. But as you were talking there, what 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 jumped out at me, right, is uh, is that 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 famous Clausewitz you know uh, quip uh, about uh, war being politics by other means. But that's partly what, what you know, you have an authoritarian uh, regime, an authoritarian rule works that way. It's a kind of, you know, uh, one-sided um, repressive war on the population, on the, the elements of your population that are existing. It's politics, basically. It's violent politics, politics made violent. And yeah, and I think that does tap into, again, that, that, that innate question of, you know, to put it uh, Bluntly, the friend-enemy distinction, which is the most human thing, and that involves, um, at the limit, uh, vanquishment, and that's where mm-hmm. it, is, it is. Where 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 you know, uh, the evil Nazi jurist Carl Schmidt is coming at it from. He's he's pretty un, un, unsparing about that. He says that 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 is at the core of politics, not just of humanity, but of politics. That's political behavior, and it's you know it's the mystery then of like how do you get you know from that to um, the kind of you sublimate that, I guess, into the democratic instinct. That's that's your 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 favorite Chantal move is is you yep. know not 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 somehow saying that 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 fight that that lust goes away, but how do you sublimate it into something that is not zero sum, but that is somehow you know pushed out into the future? Yeah, um,
1: because there isn't. There's also this innate desire to be left alone. So I think that these different parts of the human experience are always in tension, but maybe I feel it more because I, like at a very fundamental level, my ultimate political desire is to be left alone to do what I want to do. Um, obviously not everyone feels the same way <laughs> about like that, that kind of objective, but I do think that at some, there is like an anti-authoritarian impulse that all of us are able to draw upon if we know where to look and if we just realize, like, so um, yeah, at some fundamental level, that's the anti-authoritarian impulse and the authoritarian impulse go hand in hand because part of what happens is you're so afraid that others will use authoritarian methods on you and your family and your community. So you say, well, if those are the choices in front of me, I would rather my tribe or my family or my community dominate rather than the other way around. So that's why I'm always so attuned to existential conflict because what existential conflict does is it converts what might otherwise be an anti-authoritarian impulse into an authoritarian and, impulse and uh, I don't know if that if that resonates but yeah
0: um, well no I mean this is a, this is a good way for us to pivot a little bit because you know uh, just the other the other uh, how many weeks ago two weeks ago when did the the, the Swedes have their election and 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 two elect, or three uh, weeks ago yeah the number two party now in Sweden is the Sweden Democrats right like the the straight-up straight-up neo-nazi derived party um <laughs> And, uh, and it's Sweden, you know, uh, and I, you know, I've been reading a bunch of analysis. Uh, again, Sweden has been one of these sort of slow moving car crashes on this question. You sort of saw it a while ago. I don't know if you remember um, or how much time you spent talking on our, you know, on the founding Wisdom of Crowds trip to Israel, uh, Paulina Noiding, 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 however you yeah. say her last name, you know, she's a Swedish journalist who was, you know, uh, just sort of really harsh on, on, on the whole sort of uh, question of, of uh, immigration and integration and in Muslim communities and all of that, that it was wrecking Sweden. And she was hardly the only Swede I knew who was, who was talking and writing about this sort of stuff. So again, it's one of those things you sort of, you see it happen and, uh, and you're not terribly surprised. But the, the dynamic that's resonant for what you were describing right there, um, you know, Sweden is still very much a democracy. This was a democratic outcome. But the 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 part that was, even though, know, arguably fueling their rise, not just the fact that there were real social problems that voters could see, um, and that they could uh, that they wanted addressed, and these this party was one of the only ones that was uh, talking about them in the that kind of resonant way for a lot of voters. Um, it, there's a. There's also, there was this, this, this kind of idea that, that they were being completely ostracized. There was an article I read in the, in the Times saying that, you know, again, in a, in a way, there was a, uh, there's a social consensus in Sweden, a moral and social consensus, which quite, is quite resonant with the way that we're talking about uh, the Republican Party here now, you know, that it's just completely beyond the pale in a lot of ways. Now, you know, I guess one could say that, that uh, the Republican Party because of January 6th, has transgressed in ways that, you know, Sweden Democrats haven't. But then again, the Sweden Democrats have been pretty openly uh, Nazi in ways that perhaps the Republican Party and the mainstream hasn't. So I don't know, you know, I just like throwing that out there about about like that, that kind of, you know, zero something that especially with morals in a Democratic contest Ends up kind of being zero sum because you you end up pushing towards exclusion from the political process. That still f- falls far short from that that violent thing, but it certainly undermines uh, that that uh, that spirit of of, of democratic interchange. Um, and you get backlashes as we're seeing in Sweden right now.
1: Yeah, I think the Swedish case is fascinating. I mean, they're not openly Nazi now, but you're certainly right that they're not like they're not just a normal right-wing populist party they they do have actual neo-nazi origins that are more recent um so in that case they're they're quote-unquote worse than say like Norway's Progress Party which is identified as right-wing populist but doesn't have that same um uh what what is it called uh, unfa- uh <laughs> Uh, um, when you have like a bad origin, what is that? There must be some word for it. But, you know, yeah. Yeah. So this party, this Swedish party has that tainted origin Mm -hmm. in a way that some of the others don't. Unsavory, Unsavory. yes. Very very unsavory. Um, And it's remarkable. The second largest party in a country that was otherwise perceived to have the social and moral consensus around not having far right parties But, you know, I think that I only I haven't actually thought this through very carefully. I was listening to my happiness podcast the other day. I think it was. Oh, yeah. The Happiness Lab. I think it was part of that happiness podcast. But it was about the Danish exception and like how Danes are so happy. Well, maybe it's an exception because a number of Scandinavian countries have very high levels of reported happiness. But it really bothered me when you have this idealization of Scandinavian or Scandinavian adjacent countries that, oh my God, like if only we could be like Denmark or Norway or Sweden, this is like the, this is what we should all aspire to. But the reason, and, and so one of the things they talked about in the podcast that there are high levels of trust And one of the examples of social trust and that people leave their babies, like in the some crazy example, maybe they were being hyperbolic, but like, yeah, you know, you can leave your baby in the stroller outside. And, you know, there's even apparently a Danish saying something like the country where you can leave your baby out in the stroller without it being kidnapped. That's (laughs) maybe only a slight exaggeration. Anyway, but when I heard this, you know what I immediately thought to myself that, Okay, there's a reason that you have high levels of social trust in these. No Muslims, relatives. yeah, yeah n- <laughs> yes, no Muslims. Yeah. But to be to put a finer point on it, because these are n- white homogenous yeah, right. ethno states. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, so, and I don't think, and I, I was listening. I'm like, do they not? Do they not even realize like what the implications are of what they're saying? yeah happiness comes at a cost just like like everything that's good has a dark side so yeah right.
0: but the, the ideology right I mean that's just a, a, an expression of I think a, a, a probably one of those um, optimisms of the 20th century which will perhaps be mocked in the future which is uh, you know is this idea that uh, you, you you look at these happiness surveys and you say Swedes are happy and then you look at you know um, sort of racial makeup and you say, oh, Sweden is getting more plural. And you're like, great success. Pluralism and <laughs> happiness go together. Turns out it's a lagging factor that like fascism yeah. comes after this. And so, so a lot of this stuff is just, you know, I mean, the, the reality is, the reality of a lot of Europe is that that uh, its current structure owes everything to one of the largest ethnic cleansings and like genocides of the, you know, of the 20th century, World War II. Yeah, like pure ethno states were happened Jews were were, were massacred and expelled um, and um, and and there was a massive sorting you know of German minorities after the war uh, you, you, people sorted themselves into states um, and as a result you have functional democracies because you have coherent ethnopolities and that's what you know I mean it's one of those things that 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 for me is always, sort of been apparent. And quite frankly, I mean, I've said it on this podcast before, it's, 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 I, I, I marvel at America's ability to be different. Uh, now, obviously, America's not completely alone in this. There are other modern democracies that are different and, you know, Br- ancient countries like Britain and France in particular um, are different, but they have challenges in dealing it and deal with, with diversity in different ways. Um, but certainly in central and Eastern Europe, it's a, it's a very different question, a very different set of modern premises for what keeps a polity together and what keeps a modern democracy together. And people are just so glib about that, you know, like they just basically assume that, uh, that progress, uh, and pluralism comes from, I don't know what, like repeatedly talking about shit. And, you know, it's, I think empirically we can just say that, 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 At minimum, this stuff is very hard and not obvious. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And I think what you're saying about the lag time effect is really interesting. And I'm sure you could probably do like, like interesting empirical studies to kind of tease out what happens when and why. But, um, you know, also when we look at the very generous welfare states, in so, you know, uh, one of, Usually, generous welfare systems are correlated with high levels of social trust. So, in all these things are intertwined in complex ways, which is why there's welfare shop, what's sometimes called welfare uh, chauvinism, where you basically have left-wing economics mixed in with anti-immigrant sentiment. So, you're all for like a strong welfare state, as long as immigrants aren't benefiting or asylum seekers and, and so forth. So th- the presence of this growing number of Muslims in Sweden and Sweden has one of the highest rates of, um, let's say, Muslim demographic shift in in Western Europe. So I think Sweden is on track to have a pretty large Muslim population by 2050. And we can include a link to the Pew Demographic Study, which lays out some of those numbers. But Sweden's going to be very interesting to watch, um, and Denmark as well. Um, And Denmark has been pretty aggressive when it comes to far-right policies. You don't always even need a far-right party in power or to be that influential. You can have a center-right party that's trying to co-opt that far-right sentiment. Um, So... uh,
0: yeah. well let, let me ask you something Shadi you know I, I this is now but since we're well into the bonus episode at this point this is where it sort of uh, not well thought through ideas <laughs> belong um, but you know it's it's um when you talk about this kind of stuff about integration you know we've talked about it before Muslims in Europe are here to stay they're not going anywhere the the, the true far- right ideas and fantasies of somehow like, you know, going back is impossible. You're never going to deport these millions and millions upon you know, tens of millions of people uh, just out of the continent. It's just not going to happen. Um, you know, the parallel that sort of jumps out at me is, uh, and the other thing, I mean, even if you look at the sort of statistics, since I was reading about Sweden earlier, you know, it's, it's, um, the the it's not like the entire muslim population is ghettoized there are in fact you know plenty of cases of people who have made it into swedish society and are integrating it's it's it is the problem of ghettos in the cities where uh you know perhaps more radical forms of islam do take hold where this is where you know these bombings happen i think like drug trade all sorts of stuff is 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 involved and tied up in all of this um you know i i wonder to what extent the lessons of kind of um whether hard policing might be a way to solve this, you know, I mean, and this is where that kind of soft-headed liberalism gets in the way because you start getting the kind of complaints that you have uh, that you have had in the United States, you know, against like Rudy Giuliani in New York City when he went and basically cleaned New York City up. Now, again, I, I've seen studies saying that you know one shouldn't one shouldn't. Um, uh, draw too many conclusions about why crime went down I mean Rudy might have gotten lucky in in New York City and crime trends were going down for all sorts of reasons exogenous reasons across the country and now they are maybe going up for all sorts of reasons but you know like I mean one way to to deal with the the uh, the problem especially on the level of um, demonizing Muslims is in fact to uh, to just like take a really harsh and uncompromising law and order approach against, people who are in fact um, uh, uh, causing causing the 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 disorder now obviously there's a humane way to do this and you you know probably europeans would be better at this than americans are because you can create kind of welfare state and sort of programs to help people but 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 ultimately i think one thing that would slate sate that bloodlust that i think gets picked up in these sorts of things is that you you actually start cracking down on problem issues not not treating it as some sort of social uh malaise but but saying like hey you know what uh you're you're like running guns and detonating grenades in in Malmo, Sweden, or whatever, you're, you're you're going to jail. You'll be treated very harshly, and you you sort of militarize the police and go cracking down on that stuff. It'd be paradoxical if that ended up, in fact, you know, uh, integrating the good Muslims, if you will, you know, and creating that kind of that kind of distinction between good Muslims that play along and are integrated. They can be faithful. They can even you know have their their faith traditions, but basically eliminating the criminal elements within the unintegrated groups and actually treating them harshly.
1: Okay, well, I I don't think that's had a great track record in the US. I mean, we did, we've built, we've built one of the most incarceral states in the world, and it's not like that has solved the crime problem. I mean, you might say that in certain cases, strong policing or harsh policing did lower crime. Although I'm not, you know, not not I don't know a lot about this literature, but there are a lot of confounding factors. I mean, one that I always found very interesting was, and Kevin Drum at Mother Jones was one the first, one of the early popularizers of this theory, drawing on some academic studies, but lead levels. Yeah. Right. Yeah, you might remember some I remember
0: that. that. That's what I was alluding to when I was saying that, you know- Exogenous factors. Exogenous factors.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, um, there's also a risk that if you put a lot of people in prison, you create this permanent underclass that depends on crime because, you know, if people are spending a lot of time in prison, it's hard for them to reintegrate. It's hard to to rehabilitate these people into society and, and to have them have- um reasonably paying legitimate jobs. So there's there's a risk there's a risk of doing precisely what you're talking about, which is you create this category of bad Muslims or the bad mm. minority. And I don't know, like is that a long term solution? Um
0: would you take that trade if you create a category of good Muslims as well? And the, the Muslim issue then becomes a socioeconomic issue of repressing the underclass rather than representing a, uh, repressing a religious group. Put but, but it put the, it very yeah put well, it very like well, tightly that way because that's the trade I'm proposing for you here. Like, but keep in
1: mind that the the issue that people have with Muslim minorities is not just that their these communities are are um, responsible for a disproportionate amount of crime. It's that the public expressions of religiosity are also a major issue too. So, if you could maybe completely disentangle and say, okay. We're going to deal very harshly with crime, but anyone who wants to be like really intensely religious in the public sphere, we're going to embrace that. There's just no way that's going to work because the people who call for harsh law and order also don't like the public expressions of religiosity
0: no totally i mean i i i i i, I absolutely grant that i mean I, it's just i i wonder the extent to which you know again just sort of reading up on how we got here on sweden uh the extent to which the sweden democrats are able to be able to co-opt all of this is because the law and order thing was was given up to them you know i mean one way to have stopped the rise of really making this uh as much uh, an issue about uh, about religion and this kind of otherness has been, in fact, that that uh, the mainstream, you know, uh, right-thinking liberals have been like, no, 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 this is all social work. We can we can take care of it. And we just have to be more tolerant of it. You don't. I think that the the main problem is is asking people to be tolerant of crime. You're seeing it already in the <laughs> United States, right? Like you're seeing it in our in our home city of D.C. when the, when like you have these dumbass op eds of people being like, oh, you know, it's just the the patchwork of, of, of a beautiful and vibrant city when (laughs) youth drive across through red lights on motorcycles and dirt bikes. And, you know, you goddamn rich people should just get thicker windows so you don't have to listen to this vibrancy. You know, like it's just that kind of nonsense kind of drives people insane. And, and I, you know, at least reading a lot of this stuff, I, I Perhaps it's, it's oversimplifying in a lot of ways, but it's you can see that that kind of dynamic is that, that um, things are not right. People are unhappy. I, I, I do generally believe that people are, you know, to point to your earlier point about, you know, want to be left alone. I think that is what accounts for people not being innately racist all the time. I don't think there's something that that is such a driving force in a lot of people. They're just like, ah, eh, you know, whatever. This guy's, you know, this woman's covered and he prays a bunch in, in a different kind of building. Ah, eh, whatever, you know. I don't think that motivates it. But when you link that to crime and all sorts of other stuff and it becomes more menacing and then everyone's telling you that you're uh, a bigot for, for noticing a correlation on this sort of stuff, then they are like, well, you know what? Maybe there is something here. And then they become open to this kind of appeal from, from a, you know, a much more yeah. openly fascist party.
1: And and keep in mind, too, that like levels of crime have previously been extremely low in a lot of these countries. So even if you have what are still relatively small increases in the overall crime rate, that's going to be still very noticeable. Um, So people tend to sometimes, this is always the issue that people have when they look at relative versus absolute levels of crime. They might say, well, oh, well, Sweden is still extremely safe and peaceful and secure compared to America but Swedes aren't comparing themselves to american levels of crime they're right. comparing themselves to their previous selves 10 or 20 years ago yeah um so the same thing too like oh there's only like there's only like 4% muslims in sweden well yeah that's maybe not a lot but if your previous level of muslims was 0.2% then 0.2 to four is a pretty big increase, yeah. obviously over a somewhat long period of time. But, you know, these are, the human mind is, is relative. It's always making comparisons. Um, and uh, crime is, uh, yeah, oh yeah, um, oh, yeah. The, the, what you said, oh yeah, I, well, I just want to make this point that, um, like this idea of like running through red lights yeah. and how we should be more tolerant of it. Right. There's also like something kind of, like incredibly patronizing about it. It's like, oh, these people of color, this is how they express their culture. Yeah. Their right. culture, you know, and I'm just like, wait, are you honestly telling us that following rules is white supremacy? And I wish that I was making this up, but this actually is like a pretty faithful rendering of the argument or that, oh, the ATVs and these dirt bikes that are very loud. Oh, you know, I think we've talked about this on the podcast before. Oh, um, being quiet is white privilege. And I'm just reminded of how crazy some of these arguments are. But yeah, I mean, this is legit stuff. that And you're right that it drives people so crazy. And that actually pushes people to be more open to like crazy right wingers because yeah. they're like, wow, like th- these center left people, they are legitimately nuts. That's and what I'm saying, if- though.
0: Yeah, go on. No, I mean, I all I mean is just that it's just like it's 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 um, because it's tied to this, this uh, uh, indulgent idea of society and that, like, you know. Integration happens through pure tolerance rather than through efforts at creating cohesion, right? And again, there's yeah. there's nothing there's obviously nothing, um, but maybe maybe the way to put it is is that what you were saying earlier about creating a permanent underclass through through harsh policing, the problem is uh, the creation of underclasses. Um, policing may be a necessary evil to keep a society, nevertheless, less bigoted and less riven, you know, and democratically vulnerable to to truly existential sort of questions that lead to more sort of violence, you know? So then the question becomes is how do you do policing more effectively, perhaps less brutally, while at the same time assuaging normal people that you're doing something about this? And and again, exactly what you point to there, not saying, oh, you know, this is Muslim culture or something that Leads to this kind of thing, and we have to respect it and embrace it. No, like there's plenty of, of of Muslim immigrants in Europe that are perfectly well integrated and modern, and you know practicing and are living modern lives. Uh, it has nothing to do with with uh, with the kind of I think caricatures that that happen in these countries. Partly, it's tied to to this kind of ideological uh, ideological stance, letting things get so bad that that people get open to to nasty other ideologies. I don't know.
1: Yeah. And speaking of which too, I mean we maybe we can save this for another depending on how she actually if she actually becomes prime minister, but it is worth noting that in Italy it, I mean it's it's incredible. I mean I guess the whole argument that um the pandemic plus Ukraine was going to undermine like Right-wing sentiment. Well, maybe in some places it's been true, but certainly in others it's it has not been true. So in yeah. the, in in, um, in Italy, we might actually see the first far-right head of government in the post-war period. Giorgio Maloney, who's the yeah. leader of the. Brothers of Italy, which I don't actually know a lot about because previously I've been paying more attention to the league and the five star movement, the the other two populist parties. But it's it's interesting that there's even like a further right party that has basically eclipsed them. I don't know. I don't know how crazy they crazy they are. I know they've been trying to tame their public appearance Um a little bit in in recent months and years, but actually just recent months. I'm not even sure years would be accurate there. But yeah, um, so Georgia Maloney might has a standing shot to become prime minister.
0: Yeah, I'll, I'll just I'll, I'll give our, our our listeners maybe as we wrap here just a couple of, of uh, verbal shout shoutouts uh, to pieces for interesting background on that. Um, and um, uh, I actually uh, recorded an interview uh, for the Atlanta Council. Two days ago, I think it ran today, uh, with Natalie Tocci, who's a you know just a, a really good transatlantic security expert in Italy, and we had a good conversation about that. Uh, she had an interview with Gideon Rockman as well, that I think lays out the the roots of Georgia Maloney's party very well. the The point being is that that yeah they have like nuts roots, but uh, in many ways they're kind of um, you know uh, in in their anti-immigrant stuff they are also Kind of Western culturalists. Uh, so, in some ways, they're they're they have conservative rather than radical uh, instincts, at least to to hear. Uh, when you uh, say Western
1: culturalist, what do you mean?
0: In the sense that that you know, I was asking uh, in the context of Europe whether uh, you know uh, they're looking to break up Europe and create like a you know uh, federalism. They are Eurosceptic parties. Uh, but they're very pro NATO, for example. So they they and she's not like a Russian stooge from the from the look of things. Mm. Unlike the unlike the uh, Matteo Salvini and the Lega Nord, uh, they they don't like immigrants. Uh, but paradoxically, uh, Natalie Tocci was saying to me in the interview that she thinks that they won't be opposed to uh, enlarging the European Union, or at least even if it becomes less centralized. So like a union of, of European states, enlargement might not be. They might not be against it because it sort of expands the scope of, you know, Western might, if you will, in the region. Mm. I don't know. Sounds Mm. sounds paradoxical. Very interesting. Um, But worth paying attention to. But I'll just leave our our listeners with maybe uh, the most fascinating articles in The Times yesterday uh, it was pointing to the fact that she used to dress up like a Lord of the Rings character and that like the Lord of the Rings <laughs> plays like a, some huge outsized role in Italian far right, uh, it's like self-conceptions and, and myth-making. So <laughs> it's a it's a fascinating article we'll put in the show I notes. Not,
1: but... I didn't see that article and I was not aware of Georgia Maloney's Lord of the Rings fixation. That I, That is fascinating to me. I want to learn more about that.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'll put it for in the show notes for you as well, Shadi, then. Um, Perfect. All right. On that note. On that note. See you later. Yeah, good
1: to see you, Demir. Talk to you later. Bye.